From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast. 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Minneapolis-St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com. Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Blanket in the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but today you have me, Angie Coiro. I had some excellent conversations this week that I'm about to share with you. David Dayen's book, Chain of Title, is the most accessible book about the mortgage scam you can get your hands on. It focuses on humans, regular people who got foreclosed on, then essentially put on superhero capes and said, mess with me, will ya? And we have them to thank for a lot of public awareness and ultimately changes in how easy it is to swindle consumers. So I'm going to chat with him about that. But first, we're going to dive into what may or may not be a swindle. Is it really fair to blame corporations for keeping their money offshore? when to bring it to the U.S. will cost them millions. And they don't legally have to anyway. And by definition, their first obligation is to their stockholders. Okay, but on the other hand, imagine I were to call the IRS and tell them, I don't want to pay my taxes because I don't think it's fair that I should have to. I would have to hang up unless I wanted to sit there and listen to them laugh at me. See, if I ran Apple, if I were Tim Cook... I could do that and still be taken seriously as a corporation. All of this came up because Dave Johnson of the Campaign for America's Future pointed out a story by John Swartz at The Intercept. And that story, in turn, pointed to an interview with Tim Cook at The Washington Post. Cook told The Post's Jenna McGregor that, yes, Apple has a ton of money stashed overseas, that it would be taxed at 40% if the company brought it back. Dave argues with that figure, by the way. So Apple is going to leave that overseas. Thank you very much. So Dave Johnson and I have talked about the companies offshoring their profits before. And on the face of it, it does seem inherently immoral, but not illegal. U.S. law lets them do that. In 2015, Dave wrote this. A loophole in the corporate tax code allows company to defer paying taxes on profits made outside the U.S. until they repatriate, bring the money back to the U.S. Because of this loophole, corporations are holding an estimated $2 trillion of profits offshore. Companies are increasingly moving jobs, production, and profit centers out of the country to take advantage of this scheme or are engaging in schemes to make it look like they are. And Dave goes on, at our 35% top federal corporate tax rate, that represents up to $700 billion in taxes owed, but deferred because they are, quote, offshore. 
And Dave wraps it up with, this is not imaginary or future money. It is taxes owed on $2 trillion of profits these companies have already made. Who should get this money? And at that point, Dave ran the numbers. He found that with repatriated money, not only could you give every adult American a check for $2,000, you would have enough left over to put $215 billion into our disastrous infrastructure. Fix the roads, fix the bridges, fix the railroads. So that is really tempting. But it's also imaginary until and unless the U.S. closes that loophole. Now think about it. With a government that's largely enthralled to multinational corporations, how likely is it that loophole would ever be closed? So how likely is it we will ever see that money re-enter the U.S.? let alone have $2,000 of it show up in each of our bank accounts. Okay, even more. Would we be better off acknowledging that that is not likely to happen and settle for less real money instead of more impossible money? That is, what about giving the corporations the lower tax rate they want, one that would convince them to bring the money back into the U.S. for hard dollars? Okay, so let's talk about that. Uh, Dave Johnson has agreed to join me again. He's with the Campaign for America's Future. And we've got David Atkins. He comes at it from a slightly different angle. David Atkins blogs at the Washington Monthly. Can we define offshore profits to begin with? I thought offshore profits was money made in the U.S. and then sent offshore. And Dave, in your column that I referred to earlier, you said repatriate it, bring the money back to the U.S., And what I found looking into that is it's not even clear how much of offshore profits were made in the U.S. and how much were made elsewhere and never came into the U.S. So, uh, Dave, let me hear your thoughts on that first, then we'll go to David. Okay, they're talking about money that these companies make outside of the United States. So, for example, Apple has set up a subsidiary in Ireland, and this subsidiary in Ireland now owns what they call their intellectual property, Apple licenses the use of that intellectual property from the subsidiary. So most of Apple's profits on sales here are made in Ireland. You see how that works? Yeah. Another one is that you move manufacturing offshore, you move it to a subsidiary, you sell the product in the U.S. at almost what it's going to cost to uh, the sale price. So here you make no profits and the offshore subsidiary makes huge profits. Then it's parked in that offshore subsidiary And because of this loophole in the law, they can defer paying taxes on those profits until the subsidiary transfers the profits to the parent. Okay. David, are you on on board with that? Yeah, absolutely. And then they just sort of never do. And then they they never do transfer it back to the parent until there's this semi-regular 10 to 15 year period amnesty that politicians usually do. And then they can repatriate it at low cost. And then everyone sort of gets a win-win. The politicians get to claim they're bringing the money back home. The corporations get to bring the money back home. And it's all this uh, nice kabuki theater. But yeah, Dave has the right of it. It's where you basically get out of paying most of your taxes. And then eventually you get to bring it back at very low rates. So they move all of what you would call a profit center out of the U.S., production if it need be, uh, intellectual property, whatever it takes. Now, here's an, an uh, to give you an idea of the attitude they have about this, Apple's Tim Cook said this. We've said at 40%, we're not going to bring it back. First of all, he, he greatly exaggerates how much they'll pay. 
if there's no change. But he says we're not going to bring it back until there's a fairer rate. There's no debate about it, as if as if he's the boss of us. It's it's a really arrogant attitude because they know they have this control over what you would call a uh, purchase Congress. He does have the power. I mean, he's holding he, they, it, Apple, is holding the money offshore completely legally. The guy that has the money calls the shots and as patriotic as you want to be, that's really not different in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, this is I think the problem is a lot of people assume that nation states actually are more powerful than they really are. And there are certain things that nations can do and that America could do to make the situation fairer. But we're all very familiar with this when it comes to our municipalities and our state governments, right? Mm -hmm. So if a city wants to get Walmart to move in, they offer a bunch of tax breaks to Walmart because otherwise Walmart will threaten to move to the next city over. This happens over and over and over again. Uh, There's been books written about it, like the Great American Job Scam, because companies don't actually make their decisions usually based uh, on where to go based on these tax breaks. But this does happen all the time at a local level, and you will see uh, corporations pack up, say, from state to state and leave uh, bluer states sometimes uh, to go to some red states where there's say, less unionization or lower tax rates, they don't always stay there and they tend to leave and it hollows out the economies of those red states. And we're seeing the consequences of that. But companies do do this. They leave states, they leave cities. And the fact is that they can also do it to countries. And I think that's one thing that Dave and I are going to talk about. Uh, My perspective is that while a nation can do some things about this, uh, a lot of what you need to do is at the level of international regulation. He's yeah. describing something important here. We used to have a 50% corporate tax rate, and all the companies complained, oh, that's too high, that's too high, we'll leave. And so we lowered it to 35 in response to those complaints. Then they went around the world from country to country saying, your tax rate's too high, you have to lower it, or we'll leave. And so around the world, they cut the corporate tax rate. Now they're back here. And this 35% tax rate is now higher than other countries. And they're saying, your tax rate's too high, and if you don't cut it, we'll leave. So it's exactly as David described what they're doing in states. They're doing internationally as well. The result is either we lose our ability to pay for schools and infrastructure and courts and all of those things that make a company in the U.S. do well. We're losing our ability to pay for that. Dave, I I mentioned before I got you two guys on the line that I've always found your argument very convincing. And it wasn't until I heard David's point, I started weighing what's right, what's purely right versus what's attainable. And I'm wondering if this is the hill we want to die on, where if we were to be pure about this, we'd say, hey, it used to be 50 percent, it's 35, shut up and take it. And they've already shown us they're not going to take it. You know, my dad used to say, if you crossed in the crosswalk and there was a car coming, you'd be in the right, but you'd be dead right. You know, your right didn't get you anywhere. But Dave, what do you you think about that? You want a hill to die on? $700 billion is what they currently owe in taxes on the money they have deferred. Profits that are booked. 2.2, maybe a lot more now, trillion dollars. So what about if we just said, okay, now you got to bring it back, period. It's time. We're going to end this loophole. Bring it back. We get two things. One is these companies now will invest to have a reason to bring it back and invest $2 trillion in our economy or for other productive purposes. And we get $700 billion, and that buys a lot. So 
yeah, there's this argument, okay, they'll leave if we do that. Well, they still have to pay that $700 billion. So there's a hill to die on. David? I actually agree with Dave on, on most of these things. The only caution would be that uh, Dave has the right of it in terms of how this happened. But it's also true that it is now, due to legal structures and the Internet and a variety of other things, uh, much easier to expatriate now. And uh, as, as we all know, the global economy is much flatter, in Thomas Friedman's words, um, so it's much easier for uh, corporations to move. It's also easy for people to move. It's called capital mobility. So the threat that they will leave is actually uh, much more realistic than it necessarily was before. Uh, but the, the fact is that countries can and should be doing a lot more to keep their money at home, and that includes demanding that corporations pay the taxes that they're owed, and the United States should definitely demand that Apple pay that $700 billion. Uh, I think my point would be that we need to go above and beyond that because um, the problem is, as we've seen states like Delaware do uh, with regard to taking uh, credit cards and banking industries, we've seen other states take advantage of this. We've also seen in the last decade a number of countries like Ireland take up the position that they are going to take away uh, corporate jobs from everyone else by lowering their tax rates. And until you do something about that problem internationally – Corporations are always going to be able to find uh, havens of uh, of last resort, and that's why there's this idea uh, called the single sales uh, factor uh, apportionment, where you don't actually tax corporations, for instance, based on where they're located, but rather based on their sales. I mean, Apple can choose to say, oh, we'll pack up and leave, but they still have to sell Apple products here, and if you tax them based on Apple products where they sell them, then they can't get out of it. But that would require some international cooperation to make that happen. Uh, any sense well, of how well, likely that international cooperation is? Well, let me, let me uh, just say something about that. Here's what it requires. It requires the companies to honestly report their sales and their international sales. What David's talking about is that if Apple sells 35% of its sales total here, then we tax 35% of their worldwide profits at whatever rate we want, and it won't matter what that rate is because leaving does them no good because we do the same thing to Samsung and other companies that want to sell in the U.S. We get there, and these are companies that want to report high sales, so they will report their worldwide sales. There's there's several different interests that will cause them to be honest on this. I just want to throw that in. Well, part of the right. problem might be that we're not asking enough of the companies in terms of disclosing what their sales are. This is from the Citizens for Tax Justice, and they said in 2014, they did an examination of corporate financial filings, and they found U.S. corporations collectively report earnings profits in Bermuda and the Cayman Islands that are 16 times the gross domestic products of each of those countries. So, we don't even apparently have fair accounting of where they're making what money and how can you force a multinational corporation to come clean on something like that? And I'll let either of you chime in on that. This is, goes back yeah. to core yeah, democracy, on. core sovereignty. Have we forgotten that we're supposed to be a country where the people make the decisions? The corporations are not the boss of us. We are the boss of them. We make the laws and we've lost this concept of our own empowerment here. Now, yeah, there's plenty of captured politicians, and one of their favorite games lately is they're cutting the budget on the IRS, making it even harder. And around the world, there's plenty of captured politicians and captured countries. But we here can reassert our own power over these people by driving awareness of this, driving people to vote, 
and reminding them that in a democracy, we're supposed to be the boss. We make the rules. They do what we say. They shouldn't even be participating in these discussions because they're not the proper players in this democracy in spite of Citizens United and similar rulings like that. Yes, it's an impossible problem. It's an impossible problem because so many of us have lost an understanding of how government's supposed to work and who's supposed to be in charge. David? I think one thing that the entire world is confronting is that we are in a position, I think, somewhat similar to uh, the founding of America when we had the Articles of Confederation. And we thought that it was going to be adequate to let states determine uh, policy. And it turned out that, in fact, state governments were, in fact, a little too weak to handle what needed to be handled. And we needed those stronger national confederation that eventually became our constitution. Uh, the world is facing with a wide variety of problems from nuclear proliferation to climate change, not least among them, to dealing with terrorism, frankly, to and, and rogue states and actors like Assad, to and not least multinational corporations, which are very, very powerful and have legal tools to be able to even have their way with large, uh, powerful states, much less smaller ones that we are in an era where more international grappling with these sort of entities is required and where individual nations and their people are not necessarily powerful enough to take them on, no matter what their, um, what their governments do. We're, we see even highly progressive governments in, say, Europe and Scandinavia still uh, being uh, throttled by them. And uh, quite relevant to this discussion is the fact that Japan and Korea, which are highly progressive democratic socialist nations, Japan's tax rate is at 29% corporate. Uh, Korea's tax rate is 22.3, whereas America's nominal rate if before the loopholes is 39%. So we are significantly higher than them, but they maintain their social democracies by, since they can't do much about taxing Samsung and Sony directly, and in fact their governments help those corporations actually as almost public-private sort of institutions, um, they tax the executives and the people who get rich off of them. Uh, so they tax the individuals more than they do the companies. And that's, I think, one thing that we need to look at is international regulations to hold the companies accountable and to prevent cheapskate nations like Ireland from taking advantage. But the real inequality is at the individual level and making sure that those individuals pay the taxes that they owe, I think, is, is just how I would slightly differ from Dave on this approach. Let's take a quick break here. We're going to come back with Dave and David here on the broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today.
Podcast. I'm Angie Carver, picking up my conversation about all those billions in corporate tax dollars floating out of our reach overseas. Let's talk about Japan's relationship with its developing industries. They helped to develop Toyota. A lot of people don't know that. It started out as a private government partnership, and obviously Toyota is quite successful. And I, what is that key difference between the way that we birth industries here and the way that Japan births industries there? Because I can imagine if if the U.S. had helped to found Apple, I can't imagine the Apple CEOs not saying, okay, you know, thanks for all the fish, goodbye. And apparently they don't do that in Japan. So what's the key difference there? Most countries have economic plans, strategic industries. Uh, they, they have these ideas that they have certain key industries they want to protect, they want to foster, they want to develop. Uh, we looked at the the growth of green energy, for example, and said, you know what, we really need to develop our solar panel industry. And we started investing in companies like Solyndra and stuff. And look how hard that was fought. So we tried a little tiny bit of having, uh, call it an industrial plan. We are opposed to that ideologically. But unfortunately, what's happening here is that we have a system of capture by both the industries. Basically, it was, it's the oil companies and Koch brothers and such that fought that Solyndra and stuff like that. So we are prevented by the existing powerful industries of the past from doing this kind of government help of innovation while countries like China, Korea, Japan, and others invest in, do everything they can to foster what they consider to be key strategic industries. So this ideology that's promoted by these industries of the past is, is doing so much. We, we've really got this problem of money in politics that is, that is really, I mean, everybody feels it now, but for some time it has been getting a tighter and tighter stranglehold over what we're able to do here. Hence the argument at the beginning about how, well, it's impossible to pass laws to make corporations pay their taxes. So you see the problem here goes back to to a different problem. So I don't have an answer to that. David might. Hold that thought for sure. just a minute. Yeah, I want to remind our listeners that that's the voice of Dave Johnson you just heard. He's with the Campaign for America's Future and just about to speak is David Atkins. He's a blogger at the Washington Monthly. Please, David, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. I mean, part of the issue is is cultural, right? Uh, we have this tradition of American individualism that extends to this Ayn Rand sort of vision of of somebody founding a company and and then like fighting regulations and this sort of hostile relationship between uh, the company that the innovator founds and the government, when in fact the reality of most successful businesses is sort of hand-in-glove cooperation between the public and the private. I mean, we've seen how uh, many of our greatest inventions from the internet to many other things were developed by NASA. Most of our drugs are done, are developed with National Institute of Health uh, money. This is how a lot of the Asian democracies and the European democracies do it. Uh, I think some on the left have this vision of this like pure democratic socialist state. The reality is it's a little bit of a mix. But what you have culturally is an understanding that everyone is in it together. And you also have tax policies whereby the executives, the wealthiest executives, don't have an extraordinary incentive to go out and scam and hide and steal the money, the sort of I'll be gone, you'll be gone philosophy that led to Wall Street collapsing the economy because none of the executives were ever held accountable mm -hmm. uh, financially or otherwise. 
so it, it wouldn't do a whole lot of good, let's say, for an executive at Sony or Samsung to make a bunch of terrible short-term decisions that hamstring the company so that they can cash out and make a lot of money themselves because they can't, right? They're mm-hmm. going to be held personally accountable and, and the corporations themselves are bound up in national identity. So to hamstring Sony for a Japanese executive would be tantamount to a stain on the, on the nation and, and national treasons. And they wouldn't get very rich doing it anyway. Whereas, of course, in the United States, you have it's a free-for-all, and no one feels any obligation uh, at a patriotic level uh, to the government. And executives really can cash out big, and they don't get taxed for it. So I come back to the idea that one of the principal ways that we can hold corporations accountable is to uh, encourage long-term investment thinking and to hold the individuals, especially the executives, accountable. I got to jump in. Of course, I'm sorry. Of course. This, that was great. What he said was great. But let me answer something, and that goes back to tax policy. What if we went back to what we were doing for a long time and tax the highest incomes at 90%? Okay, you can, you can make a really good living, but when you hit a certain income level, then the rest starts getting taxed at a really high rate. Well, look what that does. Suddenly, you can't make and keep a fortune overnight. You have to build long-term wealth, build a company or whatever, then maybe sell it and have a capital gain instead of a, an immediate income gain. All of a sudden, all this corruption is de-incentivized from having very, very high top-end tax rates. Exactly what David was saying. I had to throw that in. And you know what? It actually goes to my next question anyway, because we're looking at an election where some things, you know, we might be able to look to changing some things. And in the article that started all this off, and that's John Schwartz in The Intercept, he points to another article. This is Hillary Clinton giving a speech in rally in June. And she said, let's break through the dysfunction in Washington to make the biggest investment in new, good-paying jobs since World War II, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the heart of my plan will be the biggest investment in American infrastructure in decades, including establishing an infrastructure bank that will bring private sector dollars off the sidelines and put them to work here. Uh, Schwartz says that this is essentially a dog whistle that says we're going to give Wall Street what, it's wa- what it wants. And going back to his article with Tim Cook, he said essentially Tim Cook and the other executives are pretty clear that they are going to get what they want out of a Clinton presidency. We're going to put aside for the moment the possibility of a President Trump with all the nausea that that would entail. David, talk about with all the pipe dreams we're talking about, is Clinton the person to help us advance this? Uh, yeah, probably not, but <laughs> yeah. it's certainly a better hope than, than Donald Trump. I mean, I was a Bernie supporter for a number, for precisely these sorts of reasons. Look, I, I waxed uh, somewhat warm about public-private partnerships just now, but generally speaking, I mostly despise them the way they're done in the United States, because what a public-private, because we don't actually have an incent, have mechanisms for holding the private part of the public-private partnership accountable, unlike most other countries. So what happens is public funds are sort of funneled to private enterprises, and then you don't really see anything back from that. I mean, ideally, the sort of relationship that say Japan has with Sony or Korea has with South Korea has with Samsung is ideal. Uh, it works for them, but there has to be accountability from the other side. Without that, you get what you have in the American system, which is boondoggles, where we give money to private corporations 
and get a lot less return for our investment than we would have if we had just had a public agency do it from the start. Um, so given those two alternatives, I'd rather see pure public works projects from the American federal government. But I don't know. It, it depends on implementation. I agree with that, but uh, but I got to throw in the dog whistle is Clinton is dog whistling that what she means to get that money is the tax holiday. Let them bring it back at a lower rate. I say they ought to make them just bring it back. Uh, but here's the thing about Clinton. I was a, I was a Bernie supporter too, and uh, by the way, Bernie had a trillion dollars for infrastructure, and she has two hundred and fifty billion. Mm. But uh, had to throw that in, even though the primaries are over. Sorry. <laughs> no, thank you for uh, that. Clinton, if nothing else, is a politician. Look at her on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Okay, there is solid opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's almost the centerpiece of Trump's campaign. Clinton gets it. And so she's saying she's opposed to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. She could do more. We're going to work to make her do more. But Clinton responds to politics. That's really important here. Trump doesn't. Mm -hmm. And Clinton will. And so it's really the job of politicians is to uh, to respond to these kinds of pressures. But our job is to create those pressures. And there's, by the way, and your, your listeners get to hear it first, <laughs> there's a campaign coming on this uh, offshore tax money. Uh, a warning shot was fired, I think it was today, with an op-ed by Ron Wyden, of all people, saying, hey, why don't we just make them bring the money back? None of this stuff about giving a tax break to bring it back. They owe these taxes, make them bring it back. Simple enough. So, yeah, sure, Clinton's dog whistling that she wants to do this whole thing. Uh, Obama actually proposed giving them a lower tax rate, et cetera, et cetera. But it's our job, your listeners, all of us, it's our job to create that pressure not to let them do it. That's democracy. Right. This goes back That's to, our job. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just for – Context to be very clear about what's happening it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show. These corporations move their stuff into subsidiaries overseas. They know it will become a political issue. They steal more and more of the revenue that should be going to the American taxpayer. And then they know that every so often, every 10 to 15 years down the line, politicians are going to shake their fists very angrily and demand that they bring the money back and then offer very nicely to lower the rate substantially so that they can bring it back. And then it's a win-win. The corporation wins because they got to not pay the tax money that they owed. The politician wins because they get to say – see how much infrastructure or whatever investment money we brought in and look how much money I brought back and we and we made progressive advances to bring things back on shore when in reality it's all a big game. It's only not a game if you make them bring it back at the rate they were supposed to pay from the start. And that brings me to my last question, and that is that right now the EU is, and I think, David, I think you alluded to this, the EU is going after Apple and saying that this deal that Apple made with Ireland has cheated the European Union of a great deal of money, essentially Ireland acting independently when it's supposed to be for the whole. If the European mm -hmm. Union prevails and what Apple has arranged with Ireland falls through, what kind of impact, if any, is that going to have on what we're trying to accomplish with the corporations here in America? Uh, not much on us because we set our own national policy. The EU is a consortium. But what's, what's nice about the EU trying to hold Ireland accountable is Ireland is not the only one, but it's the most egregious of these uh, what I call free rider nations, nations that basically act like Delaware does with the banking industry in the United States. 
taking advantage of the fact that everyone else is trying to do something positive to hold these corporations accountable and saying, hey, big corporations will have no tax rate. And then they have these horrible boom bust economies that we've seen in Ireland. And if the EU holds Ireland accountable, then that at least serves as a model for potentially other regional uh, players uh, in Asia or, say, a consortium of states potentially in the United States to come together with similar cooperative ventures. But with regard to our own federal government, it has to come from Congress. And Dave Johnson, that leaves you with the last word. Any thoughts? Yeah. How come he's a writer and I'm a blogger? No, I called him a blogger, too. <laughs> You're way too sensitive, what? Dave you Johnson. Call... Oh, all right. All yeah, right. I did. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they summed it up so well. I think we've had a great conversation here. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Okay. Dave Johnson writes for himself and for ourfuture.org, the campaign for America's future, and David Atkins blogs at the Washington Monthly. <laughs> I'm Angie Cora. There's more to come here on the broadcast. Stick around. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. David Dayan has been writing about the mortgage and foreclosure swindle since its early days. His book, Chain of Title, makes it all accessible. He puts three ordinary citizens up front in the story. It's about how they brought down financial forces much larger than they were. These are excerpts from a long conversation I had with David as part of my radio show, In Deep. Well, let's start with Lisa Epstein, working nurse, got foreclosed on. Yeah. Most of us who go through something that tragic and sapping wouldn't say, at this point, I'm going to go take on the banks. And I'm just wondering how she balanced that with still having a life. I mean, that she didn't balance it with still having a life. I mean, it became her life. Uh, that's what I wanted to explore. I mean, what does motivate people who are in this very humiliating, shameful situation? They're called deadbeats. They, uh, it's very isolating. No one talks about foreclosure. What motivated them to to then uh, build this curiosity and go out and try to find patterns and figure out what was going on in the mortgage market. It takes a special kind of person to want to do that. And these three people were those special kind of people. And, and they found each other and they grew, drew strength, I think, from one another. And then they built this sort of community online uh, through building their own websites that uh, sustained themselves and continued themselves to go into the fight. One of the tiny bits of justice in the book is that we start out thinking that people who get foreclosed on are the deadbeats, and later in the book we find out there are deadbeat banks, and that oh, that phrase went around. It's just like, okay, maybe maybe the balance is. There shifting. were deadbeat banks. There were stories of uh, banks who lost foreclosure cases and then wouldn't give back the homes or wouldn't uh, pay the fine that they were given, and there were actually individuals who went out into the bank to foreclose 
on the bank uh, because they weren't given their money that they were owed in a ruling and a judgment. One of them was on uh, The Daily Show uh, John, when John Oliver was still on it. He actually did this story on, on someone who foreclosed on Bank of America. That was part of the, the sort of what was going on in 2009, 2010. Seizing money from the ATM. Yes. Yeah, they did. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. And it was just so priceless. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the situation that uh, Lisa and Michael and Lynn all found themselves in, because I think there's a certain naivete about how much the government's going to protect you. And you think that you have legislation on your side. You think you have your representatives on your side. You think you have the judicial circuit on your side. And none of them are holding up their end in all of this. Let's first talk about the laws that are supposed to protect the consumer. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There are uh, laws that are directly directly written into your mortgage contract that says you get to have special servicing rights. If you uh, fall into missing payments, you're supposed to get information for how you can be helped so that the bank will work with you and try to reach a solution. That was just not done during the foreclosure crisis. Uh, These mortgage servicing companies actually profited from putting people into foreclosure rather than modifying their loans. They had financial incentives that went in the wrong direction. And uh, many of those rules and protections were not just not followed. For example, in Lisa Epstein's case, she was trying to get help on her loan for nine months. She knew that she was going to reach a problem. They gave her the runaround for nine months. And finally, the mortgage company said to her, well, you know, we don't really help anyone unless you miss three payments. They weren't telling her to miss three payments, but they were effectively telling her to right. miss three payments because they said, you won't get help unless you do. Cause effect. Yes, put it exactly. Out Lisa Epstein had an 803 credit score. She had never missed a payment on anything in her life. And she was thrust into the situation. Her husband was out of work. Her daughter got spina bifida. She was paying on two mortgages at the same time uh, because she moved houses at the exact wrong time when the housing bubble was collapsing. And so she had to do this. So she missed the three payments. She called back and said, all right, I missed three payments. Come out and help me. And they said, will be right out. And when they came out, they foreclosed on her. And this was very common. I guess I would call it servicer-driven default. And a servicer, a mortgage servicing company, they don't own the loan. They just manage the day-to-day payments. It's who you write your check to. Uh, and those companies were incentivized financially the way that they were paid. It was better for them if they put people into foreclosure rather than modifying the loan. And so you don't hear about that. You think, oh, they're a deadbeat. They missed a payment. But you know, the mortgage servicing company had a lot to do with that. Talking about some of the characters we need to meet, and these are organizations nobody hears of, but they're major (laughs) players. Let's start out with MERS, M-E-R-S. Yeah. MERS stands for the Mortgage Electronic Registration System. And uh, what that means is that the way property records law is supposed to work and, and this is the sort of the underpinning of the housing system, is that when a mortgage changes hands, when it's traded from one entity to another, when a property changes hands, the, a document that, that depicts and memorializes that transfer is supposed to go to a county office. And so you are supposed to be able to go into your county office and see the chain of title on that property from the original owner to the present day. And because during the housing bubble, these mortgages were bought and sold and traded like playing cards and, 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 and moved into these securities that were sold all over the world, 
there were something like five, seven transfers on every loan. That would have been very costly to file them at the recording office and pay a fee to the county uh, every time. So what the banks came up with was this thing called MERS, and it effectively privatized that system. It created an electronic database where all the transfers were recorded on that database, just a spreadsheet. They didn't tell the county office every time a mortgage was transferred. It all went in MERS. So MERS is this company with 60 employees. It's a shell company, basically, owned fully by the banks. And yet they had, they were tracking on their database 60 million mortgages at the height. And uh, there was no double check. There was no troubleshooting. There were no, none of those employees were actually tracking whether the, the information in the database was correct. Thousands of people had access to the database. MERS sold its corporate seal on its website for $25. You, too, could become a vice president <laughs> of MERS oh, uh, no. simply by uh, paying up a, a, a very nominal price. And you could transfer mortgages, too, uh, just like – and this is what the mortgage companies did because uh, they had to – at the end of the process, if someone went into foreclosure, they had to come up with evidence that said, I actually own this loan. And so they went through MERS – and sign these over to whoever wanted them, basically, to, to uh, execute the foreclosure. There were local jurisdictions, and in the case of the state of Georgia, there were whole states that tried to stem this, they tried. and this kept getting slapped down. They tried, and, and, and the, the industry mobilized against them, and even regulators at the federal level mobilized against them. Uh, there were, you know, these uh, what they call registers of deeds. These are the, the, the lowest level of government, practically, these county offices that actually record mortgage documents. Uh, and there were a few registers of deeds that tried to fight this, say that these MERS documents aren't, aren't legal for us. You're depriving us of billions of dollars of revenue because MERS was really a tax evasion scheme. It was a way to avoid having to pay that, that fee to the recording office. And the problem was is that there weren't enough of them. And uh, it, it, it ended up being, it, it fell short. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of our characters, Doc X. That's another one. <laughs> DocX was one of these third-party companies that was hired by banks to create the fictitious mortgage assignments, the transfer documents, after the fact, uh, when they needed those documents as evidence in these court cases uh, to, to uh, remove somebody from a home. DocX created two million, over two million mortgage assignments in a very short period of time in, in 2008, 2009, 2010. Uh, they uh, had individuals who were making $12 an hour signing as bank vice presidents. I call them the lowest paid bank vice presidents in history. <laughs> um, there was one individual named Linda Green. Uh, she was an auto parts salesman before she became a high-paid uh, $12 an hour bank vice president. Uh, and she signed on behalf of 20 different banks. And it wasn't just her signing. Because they needed to create millions of documents, they had anybody in the office sign the name Linda Green, uh, just because they had to get these things out the door. So in the public records, uh, and Lisa, Michael, and Lynn found this, the name Linda Green spelled 12 different ways uh, <laughs> and pronounced uh, in handwriting, in 12 different stages of handwriting, uh, all over the public records. Um, and the reason that they used Linda Green's name is that they said, uh, 
StockX said, well, it was easy to spell, and so it would be easy for their, their employees to use the name Linda Green. Uh, and that's just one example. I mean, people were, were just forging these documents, backdating them, uh, signing them in all kinds of crazy ways, signing them without any underlying knowledge of the transaction. And uh, this is the sort of the raw materials that Lisa and Michael and Lynn dug out of these public records, going on countless searches, going to the, the county uh, courthouse. Lisa Epstein spent so much time at the county courthouse. She would go there every day. She started to get mail at the county courthouse <laughs> from homeowners who would, uh, you know, have questions about their mortgage. They knew she was always there. So they would, you know, send letters to Lisa Epstein, care of the Palm Beach County Courthouse in Florida. And this shows how they work together. The three people work together. She encouraged Michael to start writing a guide for how to do record right. searches. And this is where he started talking to people about not just, you know, ABC, here's how you do a search, right. but he started finding a lot more than that. He started looking up fraud in the public records and saying, here's how you reverse engineer a search if you're looking for a particular name uh, who is a robo-signer, who signs thousands of documents a week and doesn't know what they're signing. Here's how to look for that. Here's how to look for a notary and see if that notary stamp has actually expired at the time that the document was signed so that you know it wasn't signed on the date it claimed to be signed because the notary wasn't a notary at that time. He, he did this very comprehensive guide at the public record, how to look up fraud in the public records, and uh, it went viral. And uh, thousands of people got uh, interested in that and found that and uh, were able to use that to look up their own fraud and then sent that information back to Michael. So he like sort of stored all this information of fraud and they, they posted it on the websites that they created, uh, foreclosurefraud.org with a four, foreclosurefraud.org, which is still around, and uh, Foreclosure Hamlet, which was Lisa Epstein's site. Mm. There were supposed to be laws in place against robo-signing already. Yeah. So how yeah, I mean, there's laws against false evidence being presented in a court. <laughs> Those are pretty common laws. Like you can't, you know, if I said I stole, uh, that you stole my car, I would need a piece of paper to say that was my car and not just a napkin, but a real piece of paper that was notarized and said that I have title on this car and you stole it. Uh, so that, that's the do those are the types of documents that were mocked up by the banks uh, to cover up this great crime of breaking the chain of title. David Dayan, we're talking about his new book, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. Some of us were already alarmed in 2004 when President Obama was putting together... 2008. His, 2008, pardon me. Yeah. I just wanted him to be in in 2004. <laughs> <laughs> in 2008, when he started naming his advisors and his cabinet, for those of us who were paying attention to what was happening in the financial world, we were hoping to see more regulation. We were hoping to see more regulators. We were hoping to see more people who had a record of looking out for the consumers. And as much of a grand job as he's done on a lot, he let us down initially on that. And then as this unwound, he continually wasn't really there. Yeah, the economic team uh, in the first term, uh, and we're talking about Timothy Geithner and Larry Summers, uh, they were definitely more concerned with bank balance sheets than homeowner balance sheets. And, uh, you know, uh, the banks were uh, in trouble at that time, but there was this theory that, you know, uh, Tim Geithner wakes up every day in a cold sweat and thinks, what is America going to be like without Goldman Sachs? <laughs> he, he doesn't think about what is America going to be like without a middle class. That was really the core problem, including with this issue, because uh, there were these losses in the system and they all got allocated 
on the homeowner. And there was all this leverage on the part of the government, especially when they found out that the foreclosures were happening through illegal means, to make that more equitable and, and equalize the losses so that the, the banks had to take a hit. And they never really did that. Uh, Sheila Baer, who was the head of the FDIC and one of the few people in the government at that time who was really thinking about looking out for the consumer, uh, she told me, and it's in the book, that she wrote this uh, thing called uh, a super mod. What she wanted to do is when the robo-signing scandal hit and the banks were legally exposed, she wanted to take every loan in America that was 60 days overdue and write them down to the market value. And then have, when they are appreciated over time, have uh, shared appreciation so that the banks would get some of that upside and the homeowner would get some of that upside. This would have equalized the losses in the system. It would have given banks an incentive for the housing market to recover. Uh, and she put that on Tim Geithner's desk and nothing happened. Uh, so, you know, there were opportunities that could have been taken, not just from a criminal justice standpoint, and a, 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 an accountability standpoint, but from an economic standpoint that would have helped the economy come back uh, stronger and quicker than it eventually did. And those opportunities were simply not taken. Let's talk more about the way that the people who turned out to be underwater on their mortgage were characterized. Uh, in, in some cases, they were characterized, you know, they're irresponsible. Why did they sign for more money than they could possibly make? But there was also an element of racism in this hmm. because there were people who were inside the immigrant communities who were willing to exploit their neighbors and write them, think, explain this is what this contract says when it was wrong. And that allowed the public to kind of pillory people. Well, you can't even speak English. Why did you sign that? There's no question that uh, the foreclosure crisis, uh, as uh, former Congressman Brad Miller has said, uh, was an extinction event for the African-American Latino middle class. Uh, definitely minorities, communities of color were targeted by mortgage brokers. Uh, often uh, people who had equity in their homes, had a lot of money tied up in their homes, who owned their homes, you know, they were getting cold calls, knocks on the door saying, hey, I got a great idea for you. You refinance and then I give you a bunch of money and you use your home as an ATM and you can pay your other bills and you give me some of your equity. And that's how the equity is really sucked out of these communities. And of course, the loans they were put into were of terrible quality where the interest rate would explode after two years or things like that. And uh, that really... It, that means that the foreclosure crisis definitely disproportionately hit African-American and Latino communities very hard. Now, the three individuals in my book were all uh, you know, white people, Caucasians, and they, uh, there was an interesting moment in the book where they go to this event called NACA, and uh, they had these, NACA had these events called Save the Dream, where tens of thousands of homeowners would come in and they would bargain with their lenders to try to get loan modifications. So NACA put on these events through a combination of uh, intimidation and partnership with the banks. And uh, they went to this thing and they, they gave a speech about all this foreclosure fraud that was going on. And most of the people at the Save the Dream event were Latino or African-American. And, you know, whether it was because of the digital divide or just because there were busy people who were struggling to survive, they didn't know about any of this. And they didn't have a language to really talk about any of this, about documentation fraud and robo-signing and all these things happening at their loan. They were just trying to get help. And so there was almost a, a barrier there where uh, these people had a lot of reach to reach people on the internet, but it only 
went so far and they, they, they didn't mobilize, you know, as just three ordinary people, they weren't able to mobilize in those communities uh, to, to an extent that, that they, they should have maybe. One of the things we count on to protect us is the press to some extent, to, to find out this stuff is going on, to make it understandable, and in some cases act as an advocate. What was happening during all these administrations as far as coverage? Yeah, not a whole lot. Um, and uh, at, at some level, you know, and I've said this before, that I, I, I shouldn't have been able to write this book in 2016 because it should have been common knowledge that this went on. This was a systemic practice that happened all over the country. And it got some coverage in the business press, uh, particularly when uh, at the end of 2010, all these mortgage companies stopped foreclosing on people because they couldn't do it anymore legally. Uh, and it got a little bit of coverage when there was a big settlement. The, the Justice Department piled all these investigations into one settlement, one check for the banks to pay. And then they paid the settlement in February of 2012. But there really wasn't much uh, uh, on-the-ground reporting about the individuals from the ground level who were really affected by this, the foreclosure victims. And, uh, you know, I think the media didn't really do its job in that respect. Uh, the, the, certainly, Michael and Lisa tried to get the media interested. Uh, they wrote countless uh, letters and, and appeals to uh, media figures, uh, and one of them sent back uh, this lady with the Tampa Bay Times sent back to Michael, uh, you know, I don't think that uh, a general interest audience can understand this. It's too complicated for them. So I'm not going to write the story. And, uh, you know, I think what Lisa said in response to that was, you know, was Watergate too complicated? <laughs> uh, was Iran-Contra too complicated? I mean, these things are important. And, and if they're too complicated, it's it's the job of the media to make them accessible. And uh, that, that was something that wasn't even really attempted uh, during this period. Well, lest we think that their efforts at getting publicity failed, they didn't. By the end of the book, they're on 60 Minutes. Lynn's on 60 Lynn's Minutes. Lynn's on 60 Minutes. She was on there in uh, April of 2011. That actually won an award for business reporting. Um, at the end of 2010, as I said, all these companies couldn't foreclose anymore. And a lot of that is due to the efforts of Lisa Epstein and Michael Redman, who, uh, you know, publicized this and, and, and posted the phony documents and posted depositions from bank employees who said, I signed 10,000 documents a, a week and I don't know what I'm signing. And I don't have any under, uh, idea of what the underlying documents are, even though I'm attesting to their veracity. These three individuals did more investigation of this issue than the state and federal government apparatus combined, and and uh, even though it was their job to do it, and uh, and then they handed this information to those people on a silver platter and said, "Go investigate this. Go do something about this." Uh, they were very cynical about what the banking industry did in terms of fabricating these documents, but. At some level, Lisa and Michael and Lynn were very naive because they thought that all they had to do was get it in the hands of someone in a position of authority and they would do something about it. And they got it in their hands. And the problem is that those authority figures didn't do anything about it. There's a sentence in the, in the chapter about appearing on 60 Minutes and it kind of broke my heart. There was a group of people, activists, and they themselves were dealing with mortgage issues, and they got together to watch this. Yeah, and they the had a last watch party. sentence in the chapter in, in chapter is, it was obvious to them that a nationally televised expose on an esteemed news magazine known for inspiring action would finally lead to justice. Yeah, that's and, not and the way the world works. 
it's not the way the world worked in this case, and why didn't it? And that's really the reckoning, I think, that, that, that I would like this book to, to engender. I mean, this, this is, we, you know, we have, have, everyone's wondering why people are so angry this election season, right? Why are people so angry about uh, an economy that's rigged or that institutions that are failing? And uh, here's your answer. I mean, here, here is a case where all the evidence was mounted and uh, the Justice Department and the law enforcement apparatus had every reason to investigate and prosecute, and they didn't. And uh, the fact that our system almost doesn't work anymore when it comes to that, there's this two-tiered system of justice that who you are matters more than what you did. Uh, that is at the heart of this, and it's it's a serious a serious problem, and it's causing a lot of this, I think, anxiety. And if we don't get a handle on it, if the next administration doesn't come in and actually fix this problem, uh, that balloon of anxiety is just going to grow and inflate and, and, and grow. We tend to, uh, what's the word I want to look at? We almost want to romanticize Democrats sometimes as being the party of the people. But we look at a vice presidential candidate who believes that there should be fewer regulations on banks. Right. We're not going to get a lot of help from that quarter. <laughs> well, I, I think that's where the people come in, right? And, you know, this story is a story of sort of a, a citizens-led movement. You know, it's hard for a movement to reach all its goals all at once. But without the activists in the foreclosure fraud space, you wouldn't have had Occupy Wall Street. And without them, you might not have had the Elizabeth Warren movement. And without them, you might not have had the Bernie Sanders movement, what they were able to do. And without that, you wouldn't have had in the party platform, uh, in both party platforms, the affirmative support for breaking up the banks and restoring the Glass-Steagall regulations that separate investment and commercial banking. So this is a process. It's, it's long and slow and frustrating. But I think that if you track it all the way back to these people, I think they did make a difference. And you have to honor their contribution. David Day and Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. And that's a wrap on the Bradcast, home of Brad and Desi, which I temporarily redecorated to take over at the mic today. Place looks good in lavender. I hope they keep it. Anyway, they'll be back for the next show. Thanks for listening in. I'm Angie Corbro. Say that you